he just became the the silliest character. I think one of his early lines uh, was, "It's my birthday. Time to light the candles." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to episode 87 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a show all about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, May the 6th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today is the web slinger himself, Chad Hopkins. How are you, Chad? I am doing well. Slinging on. Yeah, I mean, you were slinging webs at your computer a little bit ago. (laughs) I was. I was taking up my frustration just a bit. Or or to be more accurate, the web was not responding for your computer. (laughs) (laughs) You're so funny, TJ. Yes, yes, I try. (laughs) I'm here all night. Yeah. Also joining us today is a returning guest. He's been on the podcast a couple of times, and it's always a a good time when we have him on the show. Uh, How are you, Mr. Clark Douglas? I'm quite well, TJ. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to confess that um, I started to read your review of The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and it was long enough that I thought I'm going to come back and read this later because I needed to go to bed. And I never did finish it, and I'm really disappointed <laughs> in myself. I, I meant to – I thought, I'll read it tonight when I get home, and uh, then I got stuck in traffic. They had Main Street blocked off in Franklin, Tennessee. It's just insane to me, but anyway <laughs> – so it took me an hour and 30 minutes to get home when it normally takes me 45. Wow. Yeah. So I just did not have time. I guess I could have read it while Chad was fiddling with his computer, but I didn't. Get it's not It's not very good, so you didn't miss anything. I, I beg to differ. What I read was, was quite good. Um, and I think we'll have a diversity of opinions when we get to talking about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. So that'll be mm. good. I know, yes, indeed. I know Chad's going to sing its praises and... Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, that, that's that's encouraging. That's an encouraging you, you sound. Overestimate my opinion. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we have to kick off the podcast first by talking about, uh, and you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Usually, when a talented actor passes on, I feel the need to mention it, and I feel even though I haven't seen Bob Hoskins in many things myself since we recorded the last show, he has passed on, and it's not. It's not like it was completely unexpected at his age. I mean, 70 is nothing to sneeze at, or 71, I think he was. But at the same time, it's definitely sad that uh, Bob Hoskins has passed away. Uh, Notably to me, uh, he's been in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I've seen many times. And um, I I also recognize him as Smee in Hook. Uh, So uh, this is according to Laura Byrne Cristiano at Hypable. Bob Hoskins, who is probably most recognizable for his role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, is dead at the age of 71. Hoskins typically portrayed salty man-of-the-people characters. His most recent work was on Snow White and the Huntsman, where he played Moore. I don't remember him in Snow White and the Huntsman. He, he was one of the seven dwarves. Okay, that makes sense. I, I, I just can't picture which one he was. Um, let's see. And in the Neverland TV series where he played the iconic Smee, a role he previously, uh, he had previously done in the film Hook. Uh, Hoskins was nominated for an Oscar for his role as George in the 1986 film Mona Lisa. Ah, uh, that's weird. I have raw HTML in my thing. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> co-starring Robbie Coltrane and Michael Caine. He won both the BAFTA and the Golden Globe that year for the same role. So, bummer of news, uh, you know, he was quite talented. I, uh, you know, in the few things I've seen him in, I, I thought he was quite talented. So, I know you guys probably have a few things to say as well. Yeah, the only two things I really, I mean, I really recognize him from are Who Framed Roger Rabbit and um, Hook. And uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of my all-time favorites. It's the same people who made Back to the Future, although that's not 
the only reason why I love it. <laughs> sure it is. Um, just admit it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's a great film, and uh, the 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 technology of the time and what they were able to do with the animation, the live action side by side is just incredible. And especially considering the fact that Bob Hoskins was uh, in front of a blue screen for most of the film and he didn't really have any uh, extras or people on screen with him. Um, yeah. Th- that's a, a real testament to his talent, I think. Well, and, and this is a film from 1988. I mean, right. and so it was really, I think, uh, considered a groundbreaking in some ways at the time, or certainly if not groundbreaking, just extraordinarily well done. Right. Um, so, uh, and you know, there were stories that they wanted to hire uh, a slightly bigger box office star for that movie, but that Bob Hoskins was the only one of the people they were considering who could act convincingly opposite nothing at all. Really, and, uh, that was why he landed the role. Yeah, I have a link here in the in the show notes. Uh, the talented Bob Hoskins, Hoskins acting on blue screen for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and despite the poor quality of the YouTube video. It's it's quite remarkable to watch him act, and it, they've got it side by side with the actual film, and then him on the blue screen, you know, doing the, and it, it's just amazing. I I don't know how you can do something like that. I mean, I suppose that's the definition of an actor, but how he was able to act in that way with nothing to act against is is that I mean that's the mark of true talent in my opinion. Well, and yeah. along those lines, I've always felt like the best test of an actor's talent. Um, is whether or not he can act convincingly alongside the Muppets. <laughs> and, and this this is basically a, a variation on that, really, you know. Really, but, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what a wonderful performance that was. It, yeah. it really was amazing. And, 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 you know, I just can't, even you just talking, was it you, Chad, that just now mentioned they were considering uh, other people for the role? That was Clark. Uh, Clark, so I'm sorry. I, yeah. I've, uh, you, you two sound like or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and and I really just can't picture anybody else in that role. I mean, it's it's. I mean, he just he took that role over and and made it his own. And I just can't imagine how you would have somebody else in that role. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, he, he he delivers the comedy of the film so straight faced. I can't imagine anybody else doing it. Um, like the the line that comes to mind is when he uh, rips up the road tape. Uh, from the center, the center lane mm-hmm. of the road in Toontown. Tunes. And he, uh, yeah, Toons gets them every time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, yeah, it's. Oh, go ahead, and, Mark. I was going to say, in some ways, his role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit was kind of a milder version of uh, some of the roles he played in other films because in a lot of his other movies, he tended to play these very hard, cold British gangsters. Uh, but usually they were characters who ended up having a little bit of a heart that was kind of buried beneath the surface. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit, even though he's an American character, is sort of the same thing, you know, a cynical, tough guy who eventually comes to feel affectionate for, for, you know, Roger Rabbit and some of the other characters in that movie. Yeah, and he was definitely the sort of character where you started out going, yeah, you feel kind of indifferent toward him, but by the end of the film, you know, you really kind of feel for him and and understand what he's gone through, and and he was capable, he made you feel great empathy for his character, I think. Yeah. So... Yeah, he will be missed. Um, I know there had been rumors and, and talk of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit sequel for years, and he had recently, I think maybe last year sometime, kind of dashed the, any hope of him being in it by saying he wasn't going to do it. And I still, well, th- I think they're still talking about it, but I think now, especially that he's gone, it would be hard to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, well he, I think, has recent. He recently, just in the past couple of years, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and retired from acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So there was that that was affecting him, but. And, you know, with him on board, I would have gladly welcomed a Who Framed Roger Rabbit sequel. Um, 
I don't know how I'd feel about that now, even though there's talk of it being more of a prequel film yeah. is what I was reading earlier. But, uh, I don't know. So do you, have you, I don't know, talk of a prequel, would they like recast the role as a younger Bob Hoskins? Well, I, it'd be more of a prequel for Roger than for Eddie Valiant, mm. I think. I, I don't know where the script is currently, but at one point, Robert Zemeckis had said something about wanting to do uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit's sequel, which essentially would uh, blend the sort of traditional 2D animation with uh, the more modern 3D animation and sort of have the Toy Story characters and the Shrek characters and people oh, like wow. that sort of interacting and kind of the conflict between these two sides of animation, yeah. which would have been a, a neat idea, but uh, of course, difficult to pull off uh Right. As it was back then. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. And I think even though even if Bob, you know, even though Bob Hoskins wasn't going to be a part of anymore Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think the idea of doing it now feel may, may feel weird. Right. Uh, now that, you know, people will, will, whether it's true or not, will point and say, well, see, you know, he, it would have been better with him in it or whatever. And I, I don't know. It just it feels maybe like they should just let it go. I, I don't know. But it'd probably be hard to do depending on how far down the road it is, too. Yeah. Well, and, I know, mean, at this was, point, I'd be okay with them letting it go. It, it was such a battle back then, too, just to get everybody who agreed to participate in that movie to sign on and allow their characters to be used. And now, <laughs> uh, I think that would be even <laughs> trickier. I mean, I, the legal nightmare of putting that movie together. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to be the attorney tasked with that. It's the only film in which uh, Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse appear side by side. Right. I was just about to say that. Like, Aha. by coincidence, by coincidence, I had just watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like, what, maybe a week or maybe two before this uh, news came. And I was, uh, it was astonishing to me how many characters from, from disparate uh, franchises appeared in that film, such as Mickey Mouse next to Bugs Bunny. I mean, when is the last time that happened? Well, and, you right. know, Warner Brothers and Disney were so uh, angsty about that and concerned mm. about one character having more attention than the other that there was a contract signed in which the filmmakers agreed that they would not give one of those characters one second more screen time than the other. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so they basically solved it by just having them on the screen together at the same time for the same amount of time. Well, it was a great solution because that actually worked quite well. I mean, and, it did. And, 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 you know, two of the most iconic characters in, in animation history side by side from, from the, you know, two, you know, fighting franchises or whatever was, yeah. I don't know. It was fun. And then so, as uh, they do in their own franchises, Donald Duck and Daffy Duck sort of steal the show from their right. <laughs> well-known stars. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so sad news, uh, but, uh, you know, we I will always remember fondly uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Hook, for that matter. So uh, we're, we're happy that he gave us uh, the, you know, the legacy that he did in the film world. All right, so we need to move on to some other news before we talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, the first thing up is the Gotham trailer, which I'm still not quite sure how I feel about. I'm... Um, kind of excited about it but kind of thinking it may not be any good and it kind of feels like it wants to be kind of in the world of 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 uh christopher nolan's dark knight and kind of probably maybe sort of not I, i'm just not quite sure how i feel about this what what are you guys' thoughts clark looks we'll uh, <laughs> i'm extraordinarily skeptical about this yeah um and, and- you know, I was watching the trailer, and there's there's the first bit that, of text that pops up in there. It says before he was the penguin, or before the penguin, and I'm like, who wanted to know that? I, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I certainly did. But you know, uh, when you remove Batman from a Batman show, 
Um, what you have left is basically just a cop show. Yes. <laughs> and there right. are so many of those already. And I'm, I, I don't know, the gimmick doesn't really seem that strong here. I, I could be wrong. It may be fascinating. Maybe the next great show, but what I'm seeing isn't that promising. I, I think the difference would be though, that this is a cop show, but not constrained by your typical procedural rules where they try to remain <laughs> somewhat grounded in reality. Ha 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 ha. But where it, with, there wouldn't be that expectation in Gotham. Like, you already you're in a superhero world you can kind of not have to worry about those rules where in procedurals they they have to remain somewhat somewhere in the in the spectrum of reality and you know for me at least the more outside of that they get and the more i'm aware of that the more irritating it is and and usually why i end up dropping them and why i'm less and less liking procedurals of any kind mm-hmm. so I, there's i think there's that aspect that could have going for it but but you're absolutely right i mean i I'm certainly very skeptical. I want it to be good, and I don't think it will be. Because it feels like if it would be good, it would be something that I would be very interested in. Well, and I I suppose I should put my cards on the table here and admit I I didn't really care for Smallville all that much. Mm. And one of the the problems I had with it was I, I didn't like the idea of Superman being close friends or acquaintances with pretty much everybody who would play a role at some point later in his life and you know he knew them when and witnessed all of their origin stories to some degree and it looks like they're doing the same thing here where young bruce wayne is going to be interacting with all of these people who will eventually be his greatest foes someday and that just feels really gimmicky to me i don't know it does i have to admit i have i started to watch smallville and other things got in the way and i want to eventually watch smallville and see if it's worth watching um but i i felt just from a distance like that would be the case like what do you what do you mean he knew like Lois Lane visited Smallville. What? What? What is this? This is nonsense. <laughs> you know, I don't get it. Um, you know, and he, you know, all these people that he knew, Lex Luthor, and you know, it depends, I suppose. Like they're they're basically rewriting the comic book history, or or really the movie history. That I, I'm not really big into actual comic books, um, but they're kind of rewriting that history to say, well, he did know these people then. I guess I, I don't know. It is a little odd. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I have similar feelings. I I, I just can't. I, I just sort of watched the trailer in the background while you guys were talking because I hadn't seen it yet, mm-hmm. and uh, it it's not doing much for me. Um, I never watched Smallville either, but it does sort of have that same feel like y'all were talking about. And uh, um, I don't know. I, I'm not much of a TV person. I, a show has to be really good and have a lot of good hype behind it before I actually decide to sit down and watch it because otherwise I, I stick to movies and I stick to reading or whatever. I, I, I'm just not much of a TV person unless it's on Netflix and people are singing its praises. And so unless that happens, I can't see me getting interested. And you know, the other thing too is that uh, James Gordon is the central character here. Right. And they're going to have to come up with a good reason why he deserves to be the central character of a, of a TV show. Because from what I've seen of him in the comics and the movies so far, he's, he's a perfectly decent and interesting character, but I don't see him as being a very compelling anchor for a long ongoing series. There's not a lot to him other than that. He's a decent cop in a corrupt city, right? He was written as a support and conceptualized as as a supporting character, not as an anchor character. Yeah. Uh, There's one graphic novel, um, called Batman year one, which, uh, it focuses a lot on Jim Gordon, um, which so they may be trying to take a few influences from that because it's uh, the early days of Batman. He hasn't really established himself in the city yet. And so Jim Gordon really is the focus of that story. And yeah. uh, 
Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they do take a, a page or two from that. But other than that, I, I, I don't know uh, how they're going to really make the character interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting for sure. Uh, to, I mean, I mean, interesting as in interesting to see whether it's interesting or not. <laughs> right. and, and I'm sure I'll check out at least the first episode or two and see what's up. But yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. My problem is, and and this is why I tend to be um, people. People will will laugh at me because of the shows that I do watch. But I I try to be somewhat selective. Uh, and then at the same time, I get like excited about a concept and I'll go watch a show. But the problem is because once I start watching a show, I am really loath to give it up. Even if I've only watched the pilot, like I, I like to see it through. I want it to be better. I love the concept or whatever. And, and you know, there's certain, there's some shows like I finally dropped a show uh, last year, actually, at the end of last year that I just I got so fed up with it. And it may be the first show I've ever dropped, you know, while it was in production. So it was really I, I try to be a little more selective now. Yeah, TV can be a, a little abusive that way. Uh, sometimes the shows turn terrible, and then sometimes they get canceled all of a sudden before you've really gotten any kind of satisfying conclusion. So really uh, finding something that works and sticking it through to a satisfying finish is a tricky thing. Yeah, and I was actually just looking up the title of, of one that I really um, I really enjoyed. It was by J.J. Abrams, and I've forgotten the title of it. Oh, it was Alcatraz. Um, and that move, that show got canceled after 13 episodes and that really disappointed me. It's like, oh wow, a really good show and, and they cancel it. And then the ones that inevitably, the ones that I, you know, don't care that much about go on for 10 seasons. <clears throat> Bones. <clears throat> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, TV's irritating like that as much as I love. Uh, in fact, I, I've, I've said before when a TV show is good, I almost like it better than movies because you have these long arcs and that's what I like. You know, you can tell a story over 22 episodes per season and that really appeals to me. Um, but it's so very often not done that way. It doesn't, you know, I like it in theory, but the theory doesn't always pan out. So, yeah. Anyhow, anywho, I think that's, uh, you know, that's the news on the, on the Batman front. So, I'm not all. I'm not all that excited about what DC's doing in uh, in the film world. So maybe maybe in the TV world we can do better. I guess that's <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I'm looking we'll for. We'll see. <laughs> I have I, I have heard good things about Arrow, but I haven't seen any of it. Do either of you guys have thoughts one way or the other? No, I've heard things about it as well, but that's another one of those ones I just haven't sat down and watched. Yeah, my wife has seen it, and she, I believe, that's one of the ones that she says I sh- I would like, but I I have not had the time to see it. So. Uh, there, there are so many things on my list and, and only, you know, so much time that I have to do them or to watch them. So, oh yeah. Yeah. My Netflix queue is backed up as well. I have like 60, <laughs> 60 movies and 20 TV shows, you know, full TV shows in my Netflix queue. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, let's talk about Godzilla. And I hope one of the two of you, or maybe both of you know more about Godzilla than I do, because I really don't know anything. I've never seen any Godzilla incarnations and, uh, there was a clip that came out recently uh, where we got the best look that we've had at this new, you know, version of Godzilla so far. As he's, you know, full frame, you know, to, you know, towering above most of the buildings in the frame. Uh, but, but the thing that intrigued me, and I, you know, I don't know where they're going with this, but there, you know, and maybe these, maybe this thing is a part of the story that I, I'm not just not familiar with it. But there was like a flying dragon that was coming into the frame and came, and, and came through the screen and then we saw Godzilla. So like is there more than one monster or what what's up with that? Do you, do you, either of you know? I, I don't I believe, know. 
Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. I don't know a lot about Godzilla, but um, it seems from the previous trailers that I've seen that they're not telling another origin story. They've referenced the origin story. They've talked about how in 1954 they did these experiments and that's how it was sort of created. Right. The nuclear tests were actually uh, attempts to kill it. And so since they're not telling an origin story this time around, hopefully they're trying to add to the story in a meaningful way. And uh, in the comments, Michael Minkoff and uh, Mikey uh, talk about – how it might be a showdown and how Godzilla can be, uh, uh, might be the only monster who can, uh, destroy this bird. So, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another instance in other films where, uh, the, the human population sort of picks a lesser of two evils to fight their battles. Um, I, I, I know the concept sounds familiar, but I can't think of any examples. Um, I, I believe that the creature that we saw in the trailer is, uh, a creature who has interacted with Godzilla on a number of occasions in some of Godzilla's old B movies called Mothra. Okay. Uh, which oh. is a monster, which takes the form of a giant moth, which I guess seemed terrifying to the people who created it at the time. <laughs> but, um, I would just like to, to, if I may, um, read you a few titles of some of the Godzilla movies, which have been released over the years. You may, I, it's going to be funny. I'm sure. Uh, Mothra versus Godzilla is one. King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla versus the sea monster. Godzilla versus Megalon. Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla 2. Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Uh, it goes on and on. Uh, but, and uh, every one of these were B movies, I assume. <laughs> yes, yes. Most of these Japanese movies and uh, sort of, sort of cheesy special effects and everything. But anyway, Godzilla has a long and rich history of fighting other monsters. And while I've only seen a small handful of these, um, in more cases than not, Godzilla sort of kind of ends up helping humanity more than hurting them a Mm. little bit uh, because, you know, he's a dangerous monster, but not as dangerous as the monster he's needed to defeat. So they sort of need to call on Godzilla to help them out. Interesting. And I don't know whether they're doing that in this movie or not, but um, yeah, he's, he's certainly um, got a long battle record. So I I just put a uh, link in the show notes about Mothra from the Godzilla.wikia.com. Mothra is a giant divine moth Keiju created by Toho that first appeared alongside Godzilla in the 1964 Godzilla film Mothra vs. Godzilla and first appeared in the 1961 uh, Toho film Mothra. And I don't know, did, did either of you see Pacific Rim last year? I did. Uh, the monsters Guillermo del Toro created in that are essentially much better looking sort of variations on the kind of monsters that Godzilla used to fight mm. on a regular basis. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about just imagine that in you know cheesy clay form (laughs) yeah (laughs) sorry chad i think you were trying to say something uh i don't remember what it was so it wasn't important the world (laughs) shall forever be devoid of of the knowledge that you would have laid upon us yeah i was about to give you the answer to all of the the, to everything yeah (laughs) i mean 42 i was gonna say we know what the answer is we need to know what the question is chad Right. <laughs> All right. Well, so that's Godzilla. Check out the clip in the show notes uh, if you want to see uh, the best look that I've seen at any of the marketing materials coming out for this film yet. Um, yeah. 
Before Pacific Rim, and it's interesting that you brought up Pacific Rim, I would not have been as excited about this film at all. Like, I would have just written it off. Because Pacific Rim, I actually kind of had written off. Because it just looked like the big thriller monster movie. And I wasn't all that familiar with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and so, I, I, it's just a big, bad monster movie. And, and, and in my defense, the trailers, even now going back and looking at the trailers for Pacific Rim, it's like they didn't market that film the way the film turned out they marketed it completely different than what the film actually was um so so now i'm wondering like okay and and i've liked the marketing materials for this godzilla film believe it or not so Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's if if that means this is the uh the instance of opposites where i like the marketing and don't (laughs) like the film and vice versa for pacific rim who knows we'll see but i'm kind of looking forward to this film I am too. Uh, one of the things I like about the marketing is that it looks like they're trying to actually kind of sort of make a scary monster movie. Right. Um, yeah. As opposed to one which is just sort of big and silly and fun. And that might be a nice change of pace at this point. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remembered what I was going to say. Uh, the Hulk, This is uh, where you have this sort of anti-hero he's not a good guy per se i mean in the avengers he becomes a good guy but like in the incredible hulk with uh edward norton uh edward norton thank you um he is more of a terror they're trying to destroy him and then uh the the bad guy comes and he's set loose to fight him so this is sort of it might be sort of that sort of instance the way clark's describing it and Yeah. uh, yeah i'm very excited I really like the cast lineup. I like David Strathair and I like Brian Cranston and yeah. Ken Watanabe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and they certainly took an interesting approach with the first few uh, trailers, um, where they used the the music from uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. That kind of yeah. you know that kind of building uh, uh, vo- vocal boy. I don't know how to describe the music. Chad, you're probably better. You're the music guy. You're probably better at describing that <laughs> than I am, but. I mean, I wouldn't have called it 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, that's that's not the same music. Is it not? Um, no. It, it uh, is. The, well, it's featured in the 2001 soundtrack. It's not as prominently featured as, say, you know, the Blue Danube Waltz or the um, right. big fanfare at the beginning, but it is in the movie. Yeah, not, oh, gotcha. Chad, I'm talking guess, about the uh, very first trailer that came out way back several months ago. Okay. Uh, I don't remember, like, the main, the, the quote-unquote 2001 A Space Odyssey theme. Uh, bum, 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 no, not that. It, it was one okay, of the, good. yeah, it was one of the, like the, uh, and it's been like, I've put that movie out of my mind. I, I, I'm one of these people who probably is going to ruin all my credibility by saying that I didn't like 2001 a space odyssey. So I put it's it okay. I haven't seen it. So that's why I don't recognize what you're talking about. You are now dead to the rest of the world, Chad. Um, I'm, I'm probably just not going to mention that it's like one of my all-time favorite movies but well i mean well, most I, most people who who do critical film work for a living or whatever love 2001 a space odyssey which is why i'll never make it in this business but uh i i just it's so boring i'd love to see it i just never got around to it so yeah speaking of music by the way uh i, I do want to mention i've heard the score for godzilla um by alexandra desplat and it's fantastic. Um, uh, I'm I mean, so excited. I like Desplat's work. So um, yeah. some of my favorite soundtrack, uh, just in general. I mean, there there are certainly better, I suppose. But in, just in general, I really loved his work on uh, the seventh Harry Potter film. Um, yeah, the eighth Harry Potter film. It felt like he 
not that I'm faulting him, it felt like he did a lot more rehashing because it was starting to get more nostalgic or, you know, throwbacks or whatever, but he really took the Harry Potter series with Harry Potter 7 and did something that was really good and in some ways unique, but still had that Harry Potter feel to it. So, yeah, anyway, uh, we should move on to our last item before we talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Chad, you brought this to my attention, I think, or you were the first one to point this link out to me, I think, on StarWars.com. Yeah. Um, says, uh, now with an exciting future filled with new cinematic installments of Star Wars, all aspects of Star Wars storytelling moving forward will be connected. Under Lucasfilm President Kathleen Kennedy's direction, the company for the first time ever has formed a story group to oversee and coordinate all Star Wars creative development. We have an unprecedented slate of new Star Wars entertainment on the horizon, said Kennedy. We're set to bring Star Wars back to the big screen and continue the adventure through games, books, comics, and new formats that are just emerging. The future of interconnected storytelling will allow fans to explore the galaxy in deeper ways than ever before, blah, blah, trying to find the relevant portion here in order to give maximum creative freedom to the filmmakers and also preserve an element of surprise and discovery for the audience. Star Wars episodes seven through nine will not tell the same old story in the post return of the Jedi expanded universe. While the universe that readers knew is changing, it is not being discarded. Creators of the new Star Wars environment entertainment have full access to the rich content of of the expanded universe. For example, the elements of the expanded universe are included in Star Wars rebels. The Inquisitor, the Imperial Security Bureau, and Sinar Fleet Systems are story elements of the new animated series, and all these ideas find their origins in role-playing game material published in the 1980s. So the point here, guys, is that uh, they are going to pick and choose what they want from the expanded universe, but anything that has happened in the books post-Return of the Jedi is not considered canon. And I, right. I could have easily predicted this. I, I'm, I may be on record. I don't remember what I said when we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I may be on record as having already said that. I don't know. So if so, I need to look that up so I can tell a lot of people told you so. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a lot of people talking about, oh, this person will probably be cast to play Jaina Solo and this person will play – I don't know all the names of the kids in the books because I haven't read that many of the books. But, you know, they were, oh, oh, this person will probably play this person. And I really always thought we're not – they're not going to tell that story. That's not where they're going to go with this. So. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That was never going to happen. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, some interesting stories were told and it helped to fill the time, I suppose, between the, the long gaps between Star Wars movies. But yeah, uh, well, I mean, and there's I, I mean, I have read a few of the Star Wars novels and there's some that I quite like. And my mm-hmm. wife is real. I mean, I think she's read every expanded universe Star Wars novel, you know, prior to the prequels. And then she said they just got really stupid. Uh, <laughs> but but, you know, um, she's read all those and a big fan of those. And uh, so I. She hasn't she hasn't said that she's disappointed or anything. In fact, I don't you know, she used to be a big Star Wars nut and I haven't really talked to her much about it lately. It just hasn't come up, so I'm not sure how much, you know, she's following the new developments. But I do know there are some people who are kind of upset about this. Like they're throwing away my childhood book stories or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I think it's actually a good move. Yeah, I think maintaining the element of surprise in the film is going to be is going to make scrapping well not scrapping but you know not paying homage to the canon uh of the expanded universe uh worth it. By the way, have either of you heard the story that came out today about the uh working title of the film being leaked? No, I yes, I've, I've been I so busy today. So what what is it? It's The Ancient Fear. Uh, and it al- allegedly is a reference to a villainous character who will be played by Max von Sydow, but that's all we know. 
So the question, yeah. the question that I have in all this is: Does this does Star Wars boil down to uh, the Jedi versus the Sith, or is there something more like you know, is, is the is the ancient fear refer to the rising again of the Sith? I mean, it feels because okay, so this film is basically coming off the end of Jedi. Uh, and I suppose it's 30 years later, technically, but still, in, t- in t- film terms, in, in if you're taking them sequentially, it feels like we just cleaned up that Sith mess. Are we going? Are we going there again, or is there other story elements that we can pull from? And and do you think they're going to do that, or you know, I don't know. What do you guys think? Mm, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's a good versus evil story. It's it's just. I don't know. Star Wars for me is just Jedi versus Sith or Jedi versus Darth Vader. Or I mean, I know he's Sith, but you, you know, you get the point. It's, it's just good versus bad guys. That's, that's what I always like. So, about Star Wars. Sure. But, but you would contend that it has to be the Jedi and the Sith. Uh, I'm not saying that I, I necessarily the Sith, but evil of some sort. Yes. Whether that's the Sith or something else in the Star Wars universe that I've never heard of. Yeah. Clark. Uh, I I would um, think that simply for the sake of marketing purposes and making the hundreds of millions of dollars this movie will have to make in order to earn back its budget, there will need to be some sort of um, gigantic, terrible evil that's the worst thing these characters have ever faced in the history of their lives and so on and so forth. Um, But whether that's the Sith, um, no, I don't think that's essential or or necessary. It probably will be just for the sake of, you know – keeping a certain segment of the fan base happy. But uh, no, I don't think it necessarily has to be, and I wouldn't be entirely surprised if they went in a different direction. Yeah, There is a part of me, though, that would be really, really delighted, even though this movie would completely flop, if um, it opens you know, 30 years later and for the duration of the movie, everybody's just kind of cool and everything's good because, hey, they won back in Return of the Jedi. So <laughs> now they're just sort of relaxing in retirement and enjoying their lives. It's yeah. more of a drama than a, a space fantasy film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, or I, just kind of a hangout comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like this film will feature the Sith as the villain, but I think that that will be a disappointment to me, even though I think that's where they're going to go. Because it does feel like, hey, it's it's time to explore other options and avenues for where the evil comes from. But every all six films thus far have basically featured Sith and Jedi in some manner. Um, and, and what I really want is to say, okay um, – been there, done that. Let's let's try something new. But I I, I do feel like because a this is the fan expectation, they're gonna there's gonna be uh, a need to meet the fan expectations, fan service, I suppose, if if you know you want to call it that. Um, but I feel like that's gonna feel at the same time. I don't think these fans know what they need. They may know what they want, but that may not be what they need. And I feel I feel like what that's gonna create is a um, uh, this you know, retread issue where the fans go, Oh, well see, they did it better in empire strikes back or they did it, you know, and whereas if they come up with something new that still feels like star Wars, it, it may be a better fit. I, I don't know. And, and you know, it's, it's really too early to tell we're, we're talking about things that haven't happened yet, but you know, it is, it is kind of a fear of mine that they're really going to do too much fan service and they're not going to make a good film. Well, and since we're just kind of spitballing here, here's a theory which just popped to the top of my head um, just thinking about that title, The Ancient Evil, which is here, here's what they might do. Um, they do kind of like George Lucas did in The Phantom Menace and just oh, add no. the <laughs> and just 
<laughs> add to the existing mythology, say, uh, you know how I did the whole Metachlorians thing to explain <gasps> the Force and everything. You're right. Just bear with me here. Okay, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, so he does that in The Phantom Menace. Well, here they say, oh, well, the Sith have been our main you know, enemies for however long. But, of course, the Sith are merely a uh, watered-down offshoot of this horrible other thing that was called, let's say, the uh, Banana Squad uh, <laughs> thousands of years ago. That's a working title. We'll come up with something cooler later. But the Banana Squad, we thought they like went out of existence like 3,000 years ago, and um, you know they're all gone, but it turns out that some member of that group is left, and it's just horribly, terribly more powerful than everything else in the universe. And, and I might actually be happy with know. something like that. Yeah, yeah. The working title does sound like that to me, where it's not going to it, an ancient power or an yeah, that's what it is, an ancient fear. Um, it does sound like they're bringing up something that we haven't heard of before. Ancient. I mean, no telling how old that could mean. It could be three thousand years old, like you were just talking about, and something that does precede the Sith. And I think that'd be a very good uh, path to take. Although I will tell you one thing that I've thought about before. You know, if if. <laughs> If you take the prequels as canon, which they are, so you ha- kind of have to, uh, whatever. But, um, you know, Yoda says always two there are. Well, but at the same time, you know, the, the you know, the apprentice would be grooming or, or the master would be grooming a new one. So there might kind of be a third one who's not yet a Sith, but he's going to be the second Sith. So, so you know, I have thought, well, what if Vader secretly had a, an apprentice that we don't know about somewhere? Uh, you, you know, who knows? So. Like in the Force Unleashed video games. Uh, so you probably know much more about the expanded universe stuff than I do, and, and the video game stuff. That I, I, I really a few novels and the movies. Uh, I just I have just, the video games. I just have a hard time seeing Vader having the patience for an apprentice. Like maybe he tried to have one and wound up killing all of them within a few days, and then he's like, "Ah, oh, never mind. I'm just going to do this by myself." Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> probably so. All right. Well, we have quite talked enough about uh, all this other stuff, and we really ought to get to our primary review. So let's review The Amazing Spider-Man 2. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 opened in theaters on May the 2nd, 2014. It had a budget of $200 million. It opened to $91.6 million uh, opening weekend domestically, and total worldwide gross thus far is $374.2 million. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes says that while the cast is outstanding and the special effects are top-notch, the latest installment of the Spidey saga offers suffers from an unfocused narrative and an overabundance of characters. Directed by Mark Webb, ha ha ha, uh, <laughs> writers Alex Kurtzman and Robert uh, Roberto Orsi, starring Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Jamie Foxx, uh, Dane DeHaan, Felicity Jones, Paul Giamatti, and Sally Field. Now, this is interesting, uh, and actually, both I said earlier, Chad, you were the music guy, but both of you guys, like, Clark, you have a music podcast so about yeah. film music. So, uh, music by Johnny Marr, Farrell Williams, and Hans Zimmer. What is up with that? Okay, so, uh, first of all, James Horner scored the first Amazing Spider-Man film and wrote a very fine score, I thought. Yes, um, And, you know, uh, I assumed that he was going to come back for the sequel, but... Mm. Uh, after the first Amazing, Amazing Spider-Man was a success, they said, well, this was a success. Clearly, we need to change something. So <laughs> the, the producers said they wanted something that sounded, quote, more like Batman. Um, well, and who, so, better, who better to get then? <laughs> what do you do when you want something more like Batman than go to Hans Zimmer? So Hans Zimmer was hired. And Hans Zimmer, of course, is a very busy guy these days. He's working on, you know, four or five films a year. And he thought, well... Um, you know, I don't want to just repeat myself. I've done, um, 
Batman and I've done Man of Steel. And so maybe just sort of, you know, shake up my creative juices a little bit and do something different for Spider-Man. I'm going to call in some of my friends from the music industry. So he called in uh, Pharrell Williams, who's, of course, a big hit these days. Uh, He called in Johnny Marr, who used to be a member of the rock group The Smiths. He called in Arturo Sandoval, famous trumpet player, and a few others. And he dubbed these people the Magnificent Six. So (laughs) if you look at the, the soundtrack album, it says by Hans Zimmer and the Magnificent Six, which sounds, you know, like the title of a group of characters in a western or maybe too close to the sinister six (laughs) exactly (laughs) but uh anyway han zimmer the magnificent six wrote this score and uh it's intriguing to say the least it certainly Mm. sounds much different than uh the stuff that han zimmer's done for for batman and man of steel uh has a much more diverse sort of sound palette and maybe at least for spider-man's main theme the the closest thing to sort of a traditional orchestral heroic main theme Hans Zimmer has ever written. But um, yeah, I'm not sure that all of it works. Uh, There's this theme for Electro, which has this sort of choir chanting in the background. Mm, Uh, Yeah, it's very distracting. And on the album, it was kind of interesting. I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. And then when I heard it in the movie, I was like, no, no, bad idea. But um, yeah, it's certainly... uh, uh, an ambitious score. It doesn't always work, but it's ambitious. I'll give it that. I hear you dying to jump in there, Chad, and talk about music. So go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, I liked the sort of little pseudo rap sections in the electro <laughs> theme. Um, it's, well, especially on its own. I was worried about how it would fit into the movie, but in the scene where it's most prominently featured, uh, when Electro first wreaks havoc on uh, Broadway um, uh, or Times Square, um, I thought it really worked. I, it, it was more distracting when we first meet the character before he's Electro. Um, but in the in the scene where he sort of makes his transition from uh, good guy with pa- superpowers to bad guy with superpowers, I, I thought the, the little background sort of whisper in your ear was very effective in sort of building the character. I guess the thing that bugged me was the specific lyrics that were being used, which were basically spelling out Electro's thoughts in each scene. Exactly, yeah. So it's yeah. something like, I'm feeling paranoid, he lied to me, he's cheating me, and all this, that, and the other thing. And I don't know, it's it's the equivalent of, you know, when Spider-Man's saving the day, if you have a choir singing, Spider-Man is saving the day, this is great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, it was the same sort of effect. It was just like, I, you know, we get it, guys. You don't have to just tell us. Right. Yeah, it felt a little beat you over the head. That was the way I felt about the chanting. Like I felt like if it had been, you know, pulled back and had been something else that it might have worked effectively, but just the you know, on the noseness of the lyrics was just way too on the nose. Or you know, you use the trick that every film composer in the book has used uh for years and years and that's you know if you want the choir to be saying something specific just put it in latin nobody will care (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and plus Um, you seem more artsy too so you know bonus let's just say that for the most part i miss danny elfman's uh score for the original spider-man trilogy except Mm -hmm. that i did like what they did in the toward the beginning with uh jamie fox's character it it felt a lot like uh kind of what we got in the original superman movie with otis and then later with uh um lex luther you know you know that kind of bumbling kind of uh music that kind of we're not taking this guy too seriously 
you know, and then, well, maybe we better. He's got the kryptonite for Superman. And you kind of felt the same thing about Jamie Foxx, at least at first. Um, so I did kind of like that. Other than that, I, I really found nothing about this movie score. And frankly, I don't remember James Horner's score for the first one. Um, there's not much I remember about that first. You one. wouldn't, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so uh, there's nothing about this score that felt like it was in any way as good or better than what Danny Elfman did for the original Spider-Man trilogy. So uh, anyway, so that's the music, um, the story. Chad, why don't you uh, tell us about this story? Okay. We've always known that Spider-Man's most important conflict has been within himself. The struggle between the ordinary obligations of Peter Parker and the extraordinary responsibilities of Spider-Man. But in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Peter Parker finds that his greatest battle is about to begin. It's great to be Spider-Man. For Peter Parker, there's no feeling quite like swinging between skyscrapers, embracing being the hero, and spending time with Gwen. But being Spider-Man comes at a price. Only Spider-Man can protect his fellow New Yorkers from the formidable villains that threaten the city. With the emergence of Electro, Peter must confront a foe far more powerful than he. And as his old friend, Harry Osborn, returns, Peter comes to realize that all of his enemies have one thing in common, Oscorp. All right, well, let's let's get this out of the way, Chad, because I know you're, this is going to be your least favorite part of the podcast. I, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about how we felt, since this is the second movie in a series, about how we felt about the first one, The Amazing Spider-Man uh, not to be confused with the original Spider-Man trilogy by, you know, uh, Sam Raimi. Right. So, how, uh, Chad, why don't you tell us in glowing your, the glowing terms I know you'll use <laughs> how you felt about The Amazing Spider-Man. Well, to be honest, looking back, I think I might have overcompensated my praise just a little bit for the first one to ca- try and uh, counteract you <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast, at least. Um, looking back, I... I actually looked back at my review today and I I think I rated it too high. I gave it four out of five stars. I've lowered it to three and a half out of five. I I, I like the first film. Um, I thought its strengths were definitely Andrew Garfield and Gwen Stacy um, and uh, Emma Stone, I should say. Um, But it did feel it, it struggled because it was another origin story. And because the villain felt like a rehash of Doc Ock, the way he was presented. Um, And so I did like the film overall quite a bit. But looking back, it's not as good as I made it sound, I believed. (laughs) Yeah. Clark? I actually liked The Amazing Spider-Man. You know, it wasn't a great movie, but and it had a number of flaws. The the villain, the lizard, was certainly uh, kind of a Green Goblin knockoff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the things I liked about it is that it was really uh, more concerned with with its characters than it was with big action sequences. And I, I thought it handled the characters very well. I actually thought Andrew Garfield was a better Peter Parker than Tobey Maguire. Uh, I, I thought her- heresy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that Emma Stone was just wonderful as Gwen Stacy, also an improvement on Kirsten Dunst, Mary Jane. Uh, yes. I even thought, even though I liked um, Cliff Robertson in the first Spider-Man movie, uh, I thought Martin Sheen was just a fantastic Uncle Ben um, and just did a wonderful job in mm. that part. Uh, really, the characters were just so well drawn, and their their relationships and the way they interacted with each other always felt so believable. And so, it had this this real human element to it that uh, I, I think that was even stronger than Sam Raimi's first Spider Man film, even though it did have a, a number of other flaws. Like I say, um, you know, the lizard being one of them, uh, kind of the the sloppiness of the script in certain areas being another. But 
I, I liked it. I, I thought it was a solid start, and um, it did have me looking forward to this second one. Yeah. Yeah, so I obviously, as, as Chad has been alluding to, feel somewhat <laughs> differently than you two about the, the, the Amazing Spider-Man. I found it to be very forgettable. Uh, I cannot to this. I, I cannot recall, you know, exactly what happened and who the villain was, other than I think he was a lizard. Uh, I, I just, I, it just, and to me, part of it is, is I, I'll admit I'm being colored by the fact that I loved the uh, the uh, first trilogy by Sam Raimi, even the third one, although I didn't feel like it lived up quite as much to the first two. Um, but I did like it, and and this felt like it was way too soon to reboot Spider Man and tell the origin story again. And it just felt like a cash grab by the studio. So I'll admit that that's coloring my perception. And I should probably revisit this film in about 10 years when that has all worn off. <laughs> um, but that said, I, I feel like it was forgettable. And I have a distinct memory coming away from that film of the entire thing feeling fake and forced. And like it was just weird. I, 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 I've, and even in this movie, to some extent, I got a weird vibe from kind of the, the – um, uh, the pacing of the film and the the dialogue and the action, though not nearly as bad in Spider Man Two, The Amazing Spider Man Two. That that first film was just I felt like the pacing in the in the the feel of it was just off somehow. Um, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. And then there's things like uh, you're just you're just never gonna get anybody to play J Jonah Jameson as good as J K Simmons, so you might as well not even ever make another Spider Man series ever again. Uh, <laughs> um, so. <laughs> I will say um, I, I did like how the second Spider-Man film um, limited J. Jonah Jameson's presence to like a piece of on-screen text because that's really <laughs> yeah. the, the, the only way you can capture the essence of that character as successfully. Um, right. You know, but, I don't think anybody would complain if they got J.K. Simmons to come back and play the character again. No. They, they should. He's he's a, he's a little a little older now, but I don't think anybody would care. Yeah, he's although it would be weird. Series, I believe. So, yeah. Yeah. He. Yeah. For sure. Um. I. Th- it was. Uh. I think I was watching something. I came in. Uh. The house and my son was watching some animated Spider-Man thing. And I think I, I said, "Oh, that." I think they've got J. Jonah Jameson. I mean, uh, J.K. Simmons doing the voice of J. Jonah Jameson. And I looked it up, and that sure enough, he was doing the voice. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He's fantastic in in it, you know in in stuff like that. Uh. I I really love him in Portal. He's just awesome. But yeah. Uh. Anyway. Um. I do agree that uh, uh, Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy is a major improvement over Kirsten Dunst. I will give you that. She is the redeeming quality of this franchise, uh, and we'll talk about why that's sad later in the podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I you know, I, I still have this kind of feeling against this new franchise that it's all a big cash grab, and if Sony didn't make another Spider-Man movie soon, they were going to lose the rights, and so they had to reboot the series because they couldn't get the actors back, and so they had to start over. And I still feel like, I still feel like Andrew Garfield is just not that great. But I know a lot of people You're say one he's... one of the few people in the I know, world. I know I am. I know I am. Um, again, we'll get into specifics about this film because I did feel like this film was a better film uh, than the first, for sure. Uh, that said, um, my favorite Spider-Man film to date is Spider-Man two by Sam Raimi, uh, featuring Doc Ock. I can still agree with you there. Yep. That, that is, that is by far the best we've seen of Spider-Man. Um, you know, and even, even though I didn't like what they did with the Green Goblin, I feel like he was, he's more memorable than as a villain than anything we've seen in the the new Spider-Man series so far. 
Well, and even though I, I thought the Green Goblin, like in the costume and everything, was a little dopey looking, I thought Willem Dafoe's performance as Norman Osborn was very good. Oh, sure his his uh, his performance of of being the schizophrenic, uh, you know, troubled guy, you know, and then just the pure evil side that would appear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I thought that was fantastic, no doubt. So, anyway, uh, that's kind of the precursor, I think, and kind of outlines and, and 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 gives you context for how I feel and how you guys feel, hopefully. So. Um, you know, and, and I'll say this about the Amazing Spider-Man Two: the people have spoken. It's done better than Man of Steel, and uh, <laughs> that's that's a good thing in my book because it's a better movie than Man of Steel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so let's let's get into some specifics about what we liked about the Amazing Spider-Man Two. Chad, why don't you kick us off? Um, I thought that the emotional connection between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, uh, their characters was even better this time around. I, they, they really, um, the, the emotional stakes of the promise that Peter made to Captain Stacy in the previous film and the way it weighs on him in this film throughout, uh, it really builds to the climax very well. And the, their interactions are always great to watch on the screen. I, I always enjoyed watching the two of them together, no matter what scene, scene it was. Yeah. Clark, what do you got to say about what you liked about this film? Uh, I'm going to have to agree with Chad there. I I do think the chemistry between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone was just lovely. And whenever it was just the two of them on screen, um, just sort of talking about their relationship, I thought the movie worked really well. And that seems like an odd thing to say, you know, about a big superhero blockbuster. A lot of times those scenes feel very much like some sort of filler. They certainly did in some of the earlier Spider-Man movies, but, uh, you know, here, here, I think they're the heart of the movie and, uh, really a a treat to watch just because the chemistry between those two actors is so strong. Yeah. Which helps with their, uh, because of their off-screen relationship as well. This is true. Yeah. I would say that, uh, like I, like I mentioned earlier, Gwen Stacy is, you know, Emma Stone is Gwen Stacy is fantastic. Uh, certainly better than Kirsten Dunst. Although I, I, I never really had too much of a problem with her portrayal of Mary Jane, just maybe minor nagging, like, oh, she, you know, it could be a little better. And, and obviously as a love interest, Gwen Stacy is a much better uh, fit for Spider-Man. I think at least the way, the way portrayed in, in the two different series that we have. And I did feel like the chemistry was much better. I wasn't feeling the chemistry at all in that first movie. And I, I felt it a much better in this uh, film. My, my, my irritation with the telegraphing of what would come later for that character, notwithstanding, Mm. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, her portrayal of the character and the, the, the chemistry that Andrew Garfield had, uh, with, the, you know, with, with Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy was fantastic. Uh, so I completely echo you guys there. Um, this, this film was in general, just much more fun than the first one and, uh, more coherent, believe it or not, even though I didn't feel like it was altogether coherent. Uh, it was a much more coherent film. Um, it, you know, there was that great, great scene, uh, with Sally Field, uh, you know, in the, when she finds the, the stuff on the wall where he's been trying to figure out where, he, where he came from, where his parents are and stuff. And it just, you know, amazing bit of acting there. Um, yeah. really, really good. Really enjoyed that. Um, let's see, I'm looking down through my list here. Uh, you know, Hmm. <laughs> I guess that that may be all I have for for my likes. I wanted to Ooh. say more, but uh, um, I think that may be it. 
So you you guys want to make may want to go another round of likes before we get into our dislikes. Okay, well, uh, I re- go ahead. Hey. I really like the dosages of the villains that we got. Um, I I liked how much we saw of Electro, how much we saw of Harry in his transition into Green Goblin. Rhino had me worried because of how prominently he featured on the posters and uh, in the trailers. Uh, but I'm glad they sort of just left him as a little tease at the end. Uh, well, he was kind of releg- he, he was kind of relegated to this, the Incredibles role, you know, where at like at the right. end of Incredibles, it was kind of this. I was like, they almost took the exact page out of the Incredibles for that. But anyway, right? I mean, he he wasn't somebody that they tried to hammer in um, like another major villain. He he wasn't a major villain, and that that was exactly the way he needed to fit into this film. Right. So I'm glad they didn't they didn't try and shove too many villains down our throats this time. And um, I really like the payoff of Peter's discovery uh, of his father's secret. Um, I know a lot of people seem to not like that, or it, the the hidden subway thing was a bit cliche or what I, I don't know i just liked the payoff of the truth as peter discovers it he discovers that um we, we learned that the reason this uh radioactive spider biting peter worked and made him spider-man is because his father used his own blood as a sort of fail safe uh, to protect his research and all this really cool stuff i i, I thought it was a good payoff okay uh, since you mentioned Sally Field, I should mention that I, I do agree she was a, a strong element in the movie. And I, I feel kind of mean for saying this, but I got so tired of the scenes with Aunt May in the original Spider-Man trilogy. No, I agree. Uh, I don't. It, I don't think you're mean. And, and I mean, she was she was a, an effective element in the first movie, but in the second and third ones in particular, she just every time she and Peter were talking, it was her giving the same sort of preachy yes. speech to him, and you know. But Sally Field has really made that character interesting and important again. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, she she deserves credit for that. Yeah, I agree. Well, guys, what else have you got uh, about the liking about this one? You're gonna have to balance me out here now. Okay, uh, I just wanted to mention one more quick thing. Um, it I noticed while watching that it really plays out like a comic book movie, and I don't mean a, a movie based on a comic book character. It it felt almost like a comic book turning page by page on the screen. Hmm. It, 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 I know a lot of people might not like this sort of pacing that comes with that implication, but the, the humor was right on point with the sort of comic books. And I'm not claiming to be a comic book expert. I've only read a few Spider-Man comics, but the humor's there, the sort of jumping back and forth from story to story, from character to character and the, the, the fast pace of it all. Um, and the, the action of it all. I, I really liked that comic book feel i i wouldn't say it felt campy in that sense it while it it did sort of lean toward that side um it never went full out camp and i really enjoyed it for that i thought it was that's that was the fun element to me yeah clark you were gonna try to say something um hmm i, I don't remember what it was at this uh i'm sorry i i get no no it's fine um Nice things, nice things. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll say again, I did like the main theme of Hans Zimmer's score. Uh, you know, the score was sort of hit and miss as a whole, but I, I, I did like it. And I at least applaud the effort of him trying to do something different from the usual sort of generic Batman sound alike that so many blockbusters are going for these days. Yeah, Hans Zimmer, for me at least, seems to be getting better uh, with each new score. I'm not saying that every score, but collectively, 
my opinion of him has raised over the past year or two. Mm. Uh, and I really anticipate his scores because of him trying new things. I mean, with Man of Steel, uh, whatever you think of the music, he he really went all out with this percussion section. He had this 12-man super group that was really cool in how uh, this, the sounds he got out of that. And then in this one, the way he experimented with the the sort of pseudo-rap section and then the the really... The, the alternating between the more traditional orchestration and then the more electronic orchestration uh, as it switched from character to character. Um, and also on his soundtracks, you always get so much music with Hans Zimmer scores, and I, I always look forward to that. Now, you say that you, you feel like Hans Zimmer is getting better and better, and but maybe, I, I guess for me, I was so disappointed in the score for Man of Steel because I was so hyped for, you know, because I was, I was watching the special features and stuff before the movie came out about this percussion thing that he was doing and this and that, and I did not find the score for Man of Steel compelling. And I say this as someone who has several scores that I like for movies that I dislike, so it's not because I mm-hmm. disliked Man of Steel. Um, right. I feel I really truly was disappointed by his score of Man of Steel, and I also say that as a Hans Zimmer fan. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I know he can do better. I want to see him do better. So I, I, I'm surprised to hear you say. That. I don't know if I've ever heard you say that before that you you felt like Man of Steel was a, a win and that he's get, he's getting better with every every score. Uh, the I more agree. Oh, go, ahead. Go, ahead, go ahead, Clark. The, the more I read, uh, <laughs> the more I see that I, I think I may be alone in my opinion of the Man of Steel score, but I really like his theme for Superman. Um, that's just me, I guess. Here's my problem with his theme for Superman is that it really isn't one. Um, right. It's, 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 it's like a theme, which is like, it feels like it's about to start at any minute, and then it doesn't. Because it's, it's like all build up and no payoff. It's da-da. Dunna, dunna, here comes a theme. Nope, it's gone. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, totally. It, totally. It's, it's, and I don't know, maybe he has some master plan where he's going to develop that more. And now that Superman is really Superman, that he's going to have a full blown proper theme that's going to build off of that in the second movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit there. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the action music was just so, so generic and sounded so cheap. Um, and much of Spider-Man, he's capable of so much better. And I mean, he's been doing great work for, oh, I mean, decades now. No, oh, yeah. But but uh, yeah, Man of Steel was a big letdown. And I mean, John Williams, those are some big shoes to fill. Well, certainly. I was going to say we're we're coming <laughs> off of you know as a whole, I think John Williams is a bit hit or miss for me personally. I know a lot of people think that's sacrilege, but you know he has some good stuff. It tends to be overly bombastic, and he doesn't know how to do quiet. Although I have heard him do it, um, so don't don't take me the wrong way. I'm just saying he doesn't do it when he should. I feel like sometimes that that, that all said, um, it's really hard to do a Superman film theme coming after John Williams doing the best Superman theme to date. So yeah, you know. Anyway, that's that's uh, kind of a little bit of off topic, but relevant, you know, to Spider Man and the score. So um, yeah, I, I I certainly didn't find anything remarkable about the score for Spider-Man, which, which again is a disappointment to me because I know Hans Zimmer does really good work when he wants to. So yeah, I did see a tweet a couple weeks ago when I first started listening to the score. Uh, that was something to the effect of it's sad. I, I never thought I'd see the day when Spider-Man would have a better, more powerful theme than Superman. Um, <laughs> and, and in that respect, I can see that. I mean, Spider-Man's theme is much more prominent here. It's much more triumphant than anything we heard in Man of Steel. Uh, yeah. I, I will give credit to that, but I, I, I do like Man of Steel's score. Okay, and guys. this score. That's just me. 
<laughs> well, well, let's talk about uh, things that we might not have liked. And I, I heard that little sigh in there earlier, Chad. So I know you'll have some things too, but I, I'm, I'm probably going to have the most just because I, I really am not a fan of the Amazing Spider-Man reboot. Um, so, so my first complaint, while and, and I actually should have put this in my likes, I kind of d- didn't, but um, I, I liked the opening sequence. I thought, oh, this is this is leading up to something good. Uh, we're we're really building something here that's going to have a payoff and, and a a, bet, a a big effect or whatever. And then I felt like the rest of the film, I know they did pay it off a little, but they, the rest of the film just never lived up to that opening sequence. Like, I thought they were going to do something really cool and interwoven, and it really wasn't that much. And and so it just never got back to that level. Like I, I I had these expectations based on the opening sequence and then nothing. Um, it just felt like a letdown. You and I know Chad, you're gonna have words for me there because because you 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 have already said that you liked that tie-in. Uh, sorry, which tie-in? I I lost focus. <laughs> the, no, I, I I was looking through the document at the critical claim. The the opening sequence, uh, I just felt like the movie never lived up to to that opening sequence, and it, and it never really tied in very well. Well, I was trying to think of what about this film I didn't like, and it's not so much individual elements that stand out to me as not very good. It's sort of what the critical claim says. The cast is great. I liked, I really liked Jamie Foxx's Electro. I liked the, the uh, Dane DeHaan as Harry Osborn and Green Goblin. And of course we've already talked about Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone and Sally Field. Everybody is great across the board. Um, but while I did have fun overall, there was nothing, there's nothing thinking back to the film that stands out as just fantastic or spectacular um, or amazing. I should say, um, and that that is sort of a letdown because, I mean, I did like the first film. I do think that this one's a little bit of a step up, um, if not on the same, just on the same level. Um, but that that is probably my biggest disappointment with this film is that it it isn't anything significantly significantly higher. Yeah. Uh, were you trying to jump in there, Clark? I thought I heard you back there. Uh, I, I don't think so, but I will say that the opening sequence, um, I, I was having weird flashbacks to the dark Knight rises, uh, mm. in that opening sequence and just the sort of, you know, tense opening scenario on a plane with characters who aren't necessarily the central figures of the movie, but play an important role anyway. I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's not really a pro or con, just something that kept running through my mind was this is giving me a weird feeling of deja vu here. Yeah. That's funny. You know, you say that. I can see that. I didn't get that at the time. It, it didn't occur to me. Um, but but I I just wish that the film had lived up to that and paid it off better. Um, the the payoff just felt weak for for that. Like oh the the point was that he he built his DNA into the thing. Okay, <laughs> sure. You know, I don't know. I just felt like a letdown. Uh, in addition, I felt like the the villains uh, were were too comic booky. And what I mean by that is. I think it's been proven time and time again that comic book movies, um, they do better when the villains are more more realistic. They don't have to be, you know, completely based in reality. But when they're too comic booky, they they just don't work very well. And I felt like, especially Electro, um, you know, he's he's this bumbling idiot dude. He gets electrocuted. He becomes this guy. And, oh, even after he's been turned into Electro, he like, he oh, Spider-Man. Ooh, and then in an instant, 
he, all his energy is focused on let's kill Spider-Man. He's evil and bad and he's stealing my spotlight, you know, and it just, just this instant cardboard cutout, you know, turnaround of, of a character that just didn't work for me. I, I just didn't under, you, you know, there were, there was no character development whatsoever there. Um, so, so that was a disappointment to me. And, and I feel like, you know, Jamie Foxx's Electro was great. And so it just made me all the more sad. Like they could have made, they could have had something really good here and they, they just completely missed the boat. So, uh, sorry, sorry to burst your bubble, Chad. I, I, I didn't like, <laughs> I didn't like the thing that you liked at all <laughs> about Electro. Yeah. Well, here, I, I'll sort of state my case for Electro and what I really liked about it. I think I really liked the simplicity of the character and, the the way his character sort of snaps worked for me because the the music transition okay i i really liked the rap and I, i'm trying to form coherent thoughts um, uh, um he's this bum like you say this bumbling idiot character people walk all over him all the time he doesn't get the chance to speak his mind so even before i saw the film and i heard the music i think oh this is sort of like an inner monologue for the character we're we're hearing his thoughts this is this is what he goes through on a daily basis he's paranoid he's worried about people taking power over him i mean he he's just not living a good life and here along comes spider-man and he saves his life and he goes oh cool this guy is looking out for me i like this spider-man guy and so whenever he gets his powers and we still hear hints of this little paranoia and stuff like that in his in the back of his head but then all of a sudden uh the 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 cameras in Times Square switch from Electro who's finally getting the attention he's so craved to Spider-Man, this guy who he's been idolizing and he snaps and realizes, Oh, maybe this guy isn't just for me. He's more for himself. And I don't know that, that maybe seem looking into it too much, but I liked the way that the music sort of built that character development and that snap from good to evil um, worked for me. That that that's how I saw it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Can you see where I'm coming from? I I actually do, and I didn't think I was going to, but I I do see where you're coming from. But Clark, you want to weigh in on this situation? Yeah, um, I hated Electro. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I really hated Electro. <laughs> I have to be honest. And and here's the first thing that popped into mind. I was watched as I was watching this movie. Uh, Electro feels like a villain from one of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Yes. And in fact, <laughs> he, he feels uh, eerily similar to, uh, at least in his story arc, to Jim Carrey's version of the Riddler from mm-hmm. Batman Forever, mm-hmm. who's this sort of, you know, super fan of the hero who feels that he's betrayed and then, you know, turns against him and so on and so forth. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Here's the main reason I hated Electro, though, is Electro feels, uh, like you said, TJ, very comic book. He's he's this very cartoonish character in a movie and in a universe which has worked so hard. And I felt in the first film it did a good job of, you know, convincing us that all of this was taking place in some, you know, superpower version of the real world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Electro does not feel at all of a piece with the rest of that world. He feels like something from a much sillier movie. Um, I didn't like Jamie Foxx's performance, and I, I like Jamie Foxx a lot. I thought he was uh, great recently in Django Unchained. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and in a lot of other movies, he's been terrific. But uh, 
he was unconvincing here. I didn't buy him as the sort of nerdy, unloved guy at the beginning, just the sort of ordinary Oscorp employee. He 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 was unconvincing. He was playing this sort of one-note stereotype version of that sort of character, but it didn't feel like a, a real, actual person. And then when he became Electro, he just became the, the silliest character. I think one of his early lines uh, was, it's my birthday, time to light the candles. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah. That's the kind of dialogue he was spouting all throughout the film. And then even even when he wasn't speaking, he had that ridiculous moment late in the movie where he bounces around uh, between the different pieces of power equipment and plays the itsy bitsy spider theme with his <laughs> okay. with his Is that lightning really what powers. Happened? Yes, he does. I, well, if you I, listen, I heard, the, I heard the tones. I did mm-hmm. not recognize it as a piece of music. I thought Spider-Man just made a joke to the fact that it sounded like music. But somebody I saw the film with said, I think that was Itsy Bitsy Spider. And I said, well, I didn't hear that. It, and, it was. Uh, it was, well, it was you know, hearing, a, a very low bass-driven version of, of that, uh, this, you know, this okay. sort of thing. And in fairness, um, the Spider-Man series has made that joke before. Uh, the Green Goblin was singing that in the first yeah. Spider-Man movie. Yeah, but um, it's a much better effect, though. <laughs> that's true. It was much creepier. But yeah, Electro um, was was just a, a complete failure for me. And I didn't like any of the villains in this movie, to be honest. But uh, Electro, by far, the worst and uh, one of the biggest problems with the movie. Well, it's like, did we not learn anything from Spider-Man 3? Even though I, I even feel like Spider-Man 3 is a better movie than than this one. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, did we not learn anything from it? Which was, come on, we don't need twenty five hundred villains. <laughs> we we, <Yeah. laughs> we need one good one. We don't need, you know. I think this movie had three ultimately that were the big ones, and then a couple others, you know, hanging around or whatever. I mean, it just, yeah. And Electro, to me, I felt like Electro could have been cut completely, and we could have shifted the focus to the character development between. Uh, Andrew Garfield's uh, uh, Peter Parker, sorry, and uh, and Harry Osborn, and the developing tension there, and we could have just made the movie about that, and I think we would have had a better movie, and that also we wouldn't have had to rush. Uh, okay, spoiler alert: <laughs> uh, you have been warned, audience. Uh, we would not have had to have rushed Harry Osborn's transformation into the Green Goblin. Like that could have been taking place over the entire movie instead of in one scene where all of a sudden he takes his drug and then he jumps on his jet-powered thing and he's the Green Goblin. I mean, what the heck was that? Incidentally, his jet-powered thing, which healed him, which he didn't think to jump into even though he knew about its healing capabilities um, before he turned into the Green Goblin. It, you know, I, right. I thought that was a little peculiar of him, but different strokes for different folks, I guess. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the villains in general in this film are just a mess, just a complete and utter mess. And I'll say, I mean, at least at least I feel like Dane DeHaan's performance was was decent. It's just the writing that let him down. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I really liked his performance, no doubt. I, and I did not expect to because I, I saw him in the trailers thinking this, this what is this is weird. But but I, I <laughs> it worked, though, in the in the context of the film, it worked really well. So, yeah, I agree. And he reminded me a little bit of a young Jack Nicholson with mm. sort of that kind of sly charisma. Um mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the 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 scene where um, where he ultimately gets so mad at Spider Man for for not giving him any of his blood when Spider Man gives him 
a perfectly legitimate good reason why he shouldn't give it to him right now because he could kill him, you know, and says, just give me a little time. We should wait on this. And Harry, who otherwise seems like an intelligent, reasonable sort of guy, just kind of throws a hissy fit. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) acts like a baby, basically. And, you know, it just struck me as very lazy writing. Right. I actually wrote down on my notes. He was a grounded character who becomes petulant and whiny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And, and, and what's with all of a sudden, you know, you take a little bit of spider venom and now you have pointy ears and you throw pumpkin bombs. I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. It just, yeah, the characterization of the villains is just awful. So argue with that, Chad. No, no I, I agree. I, I thought that the, the development of Electra worked better for me than the development of Goblin, but I, I, I liked Dane DeHaan. Yeah, no, totally. Again, I, I completely agree with that. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. Uh, I I felt like the 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 fighting scenes or the the action sequences were a bit video gamey. It's like all of a sudden we would it's like engage bullet time mode at, at strange and odd times and and uh, just uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel like Mark Webb decided he wanted to be Zack Snyder. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Because it had that, that same sort of like speed up, slow down yes. effect that Snyder uses so frequently in his movies. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's strange that he'd go in that direction after he worked so hard in the first film to stick with practical effects over CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so did you also feel then, Chad, like there was just way too much CGI, like cut, cut back a little bit? I, I just Compar- charted it off as a, uh, well, comparatively, yes, because yeah. the first film had very minimal CGI in the action scene regard. That, that was something that they strived for. Um, all the web slinging scenes were done with actual cables in the city. I mean, they, they went all out for the first one. And so uh, the problem with having a character or a villain that can just teleport from place to place is you have to be able to keep up. And that, so the, the CGI felt like a byproduct of that for me. And uh, I definitely see the problems that you have with that. Yeah. Did either of you feel like Mark Webb, uh, whether you liked his work or not, was much more sort of under the studio's thumb this time around than he was in the first movie? Yes, absolutely. I felt like that this movie was made by committee. It's like, okay, we need this element and this element and this element. And that's that's ultimately why I think, to me, it felt like that we had these this villain madness is because the studio is like, well, we got to shove this element in and this element in. Whether that's true or not, that's what it felt like to me is, is decision, you know, movie made by committee. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the first one, you know, the first movie Mark Webb made, I don't know if either of you saw it, but it was a romantic comedy called 500 Days of Summer. Mm-mm. And it, it, it's a good little movie. And in, in a weird way, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man feels almost like a natural progression of that in that, okay, he's making this big superhero drama, but it's also a relationship movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it felt like a sort of uh-huh. personal kind of spin on on the superhero movie. But uh, th- this one, yeah, it, it really does feel like it's just sort of cobbled together from parts of other movies um a friend of mine referred to it as a franken movie which seems <laughs> sort of apt yeah absolutely i agree with that chad you you may you may argue with that if you like no i'm good okay um oh i, I was just reading through some of my notes here did it seem odd that that uh harry osborne was just fine until long you know nasty fingernail dad said that uh you're gonna die as an old man someday and then all of a sudden he's immediately starts dying and he's not gonna die an old man he's gonna die a young man what's up with that 
I mean, he seemed <laughs> fine before Daddy told him he had the disease, and now all of a sudden he's about he's dying. You know, that that seems precisely like the sort of um, kind of lazy contrivance that um, writers Orchie and Kurtzman would come up with because they've done this sort of thing a lot. And uh, honestly, I don't know why people are still letting them so be involved with these big blockbusters. So you're not a fan. No, I mean, okay. I, I liked, I liked the first Star Trek movie um, that they did with Mr. Abrams, and I kind of like Mission Impossible three. Uh huh. Um, but almost everything else that they and, and okay, I like Fringe too, the TV show. Yes, absolutely. But but most of the other movies they've been involved with uh, the Transformers movies, Cowboys and yeah. Aliens, this movie, The Legend of Zorro, The Island, uh, uh, just just so much needlessly complicated, messy stuff. Now, didn't they write uh, Star Trek Into Darkness as well? They did, which I did not like. Oh, so you're just the opposite. I liked it far better than the first Star Trek. Okay. So, 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 but or, uh, you're saying it's Orchi, not Orsi? I thought it was Orsi. Orsi, Orsi. I, I thought it was Orchi, but I could be wrong. Anyway, I, you know, Roberto yeah, and, and Kurtzman. Um, to me, they're fifty-fifty. Like it, it, it's either going to be good or bad. And I'm, I'm exactly flip-flopped on on Star Trek, but but I, you know, like they did such a lot of great work in Fringe. Um, Mission Impossible Three wasn't awful, um, or was it four? Wait, wait, which one did they write? I'm, they did I'm, three. Okay, yeah, that yeah. makes that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but but again, their work on Transformers is is uh, this is a failure of the human kind on the worst level. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and, and good or bad, their stuff is always just sort of needlessly convoluted and complicated and overstuffed. Um, they they can't just sort of settle down and write a good story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, 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 and there's more, but I'll, I'll let you continue your thought. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> just you know, they're, they're hit or miss. Uh, they they either do, well. Didn't I read something though that the dream team is being split up uh, with with Orsi and Kurtzman? I don't know. Uh, hang on, I'll find out really quick. Orsi, Kurtzman, split. Let's see if that comes up with anything. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. I, I thought it was those two. Uh, one of them is going to go on to direct, and and I think the other is going to keep on writing. Um, let me, let me. There's here's the Hollywood Reporter. Alice Korsman and Roberto Orsi, the biggest writing team in modern uh, tentpole movies, are breaking up. The duo who first began writing together on the TV series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, before working with J.J. Abrams on Alias, have worked on the Star Trek and Transformers franchises. Uh, as well as Mission Impossible 3. They also worked on the upcoming Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Amazing Spider-Man 3. THR has confirmed the pair are parting ways on the movie side. Those sources say the TV side, their production company, KO Paper Products, will remain intact for the time being. Uh, da, 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 da. The insiders, insiders say the parting is amicable and has been brewing for some time as the writers have been focusing on separate franchises. Orsi is spending more time with Trek and is even in talks to direct the third installment. So mm. there, there you go. I guess we'll find out whether one of them was responsible for all the good stuff and one for the bad one. <laughs> we will, <laughs> or or we won't see a difference. One, one yeah. way so I'm going to throw this in the show outline there. Uh, so yeah, that that link will be in the show notes. Uh, anybody who wants to uh, keep up with that. Uh, so uh, we need to talk about the big scene, uh, and we've already called spoiler warning, but this is a major spoiler. So once again, major spoiler coming up. We're about to talk about. All right, so for me, the the only redeeming thing about this, the most consistent redeeming thing about this franchise has been Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy. I, I really enjoy Emma Stone pretty much in whatever I've seen her in so far, and uh, she's just a very talented actress. Um, 
And I, I, you know, enjoyed her as Gwen Stacy. And that's the one thing that I liked about this franchise. And now that's gone. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> I thought it was a very bold move. Um, I mean, anybody who's familiar with the comics knows that when Gwen Stacy was killed off in the comics in a very similar way, uh, it was a very, very big deal. And I don't think anybody uh, saw uh, Sony killing off Emma Stone this early in a franchise uh, uh, like like Spider-Man that that draws heavily on the Emma Stone audience, I think, as far as the the women crowd uh, or, or, or men crowd goes. I mean, it, it, Emma Stone has a wide appeal. Um, sure. And so killing her off so early uh, in this franchise, I think, was a bold move. Um, it worked for me. Did it not work for you, TJ? No, it did. And I'm but I'm conflicted about it. Um, it was the, I, I think I texted you like I, I, I would have been more moved by it had I been more invested in the franchise. Or that doesn't mean I wasn't moved by it. Um, right. And and it wasn't like it, so I, I I knew the rumors. I knew that uh, Gwen Stacy was wearing the same outfit that she wore in the comics when she was killed, and uh, so I knew that the there was a possibility that she's going to be killed. But I wondered, well, you know, would they kill her off this early in the franchise? I mean, you know, because I, I I have a little bit of cynicism now that Marvel just refuses to kill any of their main characters. You know, and and technically this is Marvel, but it's Sony, right? You know, it's a right. Marvel property, but Sony has the rights, whatever. But I, I I still had that little bit of that cynicism just in general because come on, you know, as much as I love the Marvel universe, at this point it's high time they killed somebody to keep the stakes high. Um, well, uh-huh. you know, and they just, there's been multiple opportunities where somebody could have died and they've either brought them back or, um, or they just, you know, didn't kill them. So whatever. So I had a little bit of that cynicism. So I really was not sure, you know, and I had successfully avoided spoilers. Anytime I saw a headline remotely, you know, hinting at the possibilities, I avoided that, like, you know, the, the plague of black death. So, um, yeah, I, I was a little surprised, um, and even you know when you see the, I, I guess by the time I saw the spider the web, the web you know reaching out and and it, I, I thought eh, no she's they're they're gonna kill her, and it, it was very moving. Um, I you know it it was not uh it was not poorly done, um and and even oh man that scene where he's holding her and 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 you know come on you know and and you keep expecting her eyes to flutter and they never do. It, it was it was very well done. Yeah. Uh, I I agree that the scene was well done. It was very well played by uh, Andrew Garfield, sort of handling the aftermath of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the few sort of action scenes in the movie, which was actually really effectively staged yes. by Mr. Webb. But that that scene sort of made me angry. And um, I got angrier the more I thought about it uh, because <laughs> – I, I do realize Gwen Stacy died in the comics and everything, and it's a big part of the comic book continuity, but I don't feel like this movie earned a moment that heavy. Sure. Uh, it, felt, it felt very comparable to the scene in The Dark Knight, where I guess a spoiler for people who haven't seen The Dark Knight, where uh, Rachel Dawes is killed, mm-hmm. um, You know, which is a big, powerful, dramatic moment, and she's not even as significant a character as Gwen Stacy. But, uh, you know, a powerful moment, but one which I think that movie sort of earned by establishing this dark world and these high stakes for these characters. I agree. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is such a, otherwise, it's such a goofy comic book movie. It's, you know, even though it has some grim moments, it's, you know, 
for the most part, has this kind of sense of lightweight fun to it, especially with this cartoony electro villain they have in this one. <laughs> and, and I don't know, it, it just felt so out of sync with this movie. Um, and so just incredibly grim in contrast to everything else with the movie. And on top of that, it, you know, metaphorically and literally kills the one thing, the one thing about this series that everybody agrees really works and makes it worth watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes no sense to me at all. Unless mm-hmm. unless Emma Stone just, you know, wanted out and was tired of it, which I don't really see. No, I don't think so. I think they you wanted know. to do something that was shocking. Uh, well, kind of shocking. If you knew the comic books, you saw it coming. And, and even... Even so, um, and I agree, and that's why I said when I started, you know, going down this road that I was a bit conflicted about it, is that I didn't feel like the movie earned it, and, you know, people will, will, will talk about emotional manipulation or whatever, but I just feel like this is good storytelling to, to, to the ebb and flow of emotions throughout the movie. I was not in an emotional place where I was ready for that to happen when it happened. Uh, the movie didn't get me there. And, and I'm not, you know, sure, movies can manipulate you, your emotions in ways that are not good, uh, or that, that, that are not good storytelling. But I feel like there is an element where a good story, you know, a, the, the good method of storytelling, you will have been prepared for this moment. And I didn't feel prepared at all for this moment. Do you, do you, am I making any sense? I don't know quite how else to say it. It, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. E- even though, you know, I guess it was sort of foreshadowed. It was telegraphed. Whole, but yeah, but but very clunkily so. Yes. And, uh, you know, so obviously so that I was thinking for a minute, well, maybe this is some sort of fake out, you know, and they're, they're just trying to trick everybody into thinking they're actually going to kill her because the movie was basically saying, you know, she's going to die every other time she turned up. Right, yes. But, yeah. Um, yeah, well, what's sort of strange thing, about... Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Somebody go. (laughs) Another thing that really bugged me, too, was even though Andrew Garfield did a tremendous job sort of playing that moment and its immediate aftermath, the movie, I don't think, gave his emotions and that whole development enough time or or enough respect, really, because that happens. And then the movie's like, okay, well, uh, we're going to let him deal with his grief and we're going to be setting up Sinister Six sequel over here. Okay, okay, we're back to Spider-Man and the montage and he's recovered and look, he's fighting the Rhino. Fun movie. The Underminer. The under- I, mean, yeah. I, mean, I mean, the Rhino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was kind of like the movie was like, oh, that's sad. But hey, more sequels on the way, so look forward to that. You know, and, <laughs> Yeah. It just had this, uh, this very sort of... Um, tonal awkwardness to it which bugged me a lot yeah it was definitely tonal i like that tonal awkwardness that's that's a good way to put it yeah chad i think it might have been plagued by not sort of last minute changes you know because uh shailene woodley was cast as mary jane and she actually filmed a lot for the film um but her character was ultimately cut uh from this film and they they're saving the mary jane mary jane character for later in the franchise and it may not even be shailene woodley anymore um and so i think the part of the surprise of the i, I say surprise lightly of uh gwen stacy's death can't might have been because um we hadn't met mary jane yet um and maybe the 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 tonal awkwardness you speak of is also because her character was cut after she had filmed so much of the film already 
Yeah, and that part of me is that cynicism comes back knowing about the whole MJ thing where she was filmed and then cut from the movie where I feel like the movie was made by a committee because they're like, oh, let's let's throw the Mary Jane element into the into the thing a little bit. No, whoop, no, we're going to take that out. We are our, you know, uh, case studies or, or whatever have shown that, that, that that's not going to work so well for our audience. It just it just really, really feels like made by committee at that point. Yeah, I don't know. Am I being too cynical? No, no, not at all. And, you know, the thing that bewilders me, too, is that um, Sony is attempting to turn this into sort of an Avengers-style universe with all Mm -hmm. these spinoffs and sequels. That's the cool thing to do. Yeah, but it... it, I'm not feeling it. It's... This this universe already feels so small. Um, You know, Marvel, whatever their strengths or weaknesses, it, it does feel like a legitimately huge world with room for so many different kinds of characters and Mm -hmm. stories. Uh, The amazing Spider-Man movies have not given me that at all. And they made it even smaller in this movie, I think by essentially making Oscorp the villain factory. And it looks like that's pretty much going to be the origin point for every villain from Mm -hmm. here on out. It was where the lizard got his start. It was where Electro got his start. It's of course where Harry Osborn got his start. It's where the rhino got his start. And if the implications of that scene late in the movie are to be believed, they've got a whole new batch of villains they're cranking out. And I I don't know. It just makes the whole, the whole thing seem, uh, I don't know, like such an insulated endeavor. I don't don't care for that. Yeah. And I see the thing is uh, I'm happy with Marvel and being a big universe, but I'm, I would also be happy for Spider-Man to just be Spider-Man. Like if they would just get a good thing going, which you, you know, as I've argued, they don't have a good thing going, but you know, if you would just get a good thing going with Spider-Man, just stick with it, you know? And it's kind of like how I don't feel like I'm, I care that much for this whole Batman Superman team up over here at DC. Um, just just let Superman be Superman, give him a good movie. You know, it's too much trying to emulate Marvel. You know, Marvel is doing well at what they're doing. You're not going to, so don't even try, go do something good. Don't try to emulate (laughs) them. Yeah. Uh, I don't think either studio Warner brothers or Sony really recognize their strengths. No. Uh, and they're trying to copy Marvel's template, and they're trying to rush through Marvel's template, too, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bad thing. But I, I don't know. I know this movie was a huge success, but uh, I don't Do either of you really want to see a Sinister Six movie? I haven't met anybody who thinks no. that idea is terribly exciting. Not, Not really. Not yeah. I, I mean, especially, <laughs> I don't know, with Electro and Rhino and the Green Goblin forming half of that, I, I'm not impressed so far no. with these guys as central characters but uh, I guess that's coming since this movie did do pretty well at the box office especially internationally but yeah there's no stopping the machine for sure at this point it's it's you know one way or another we're gonna see Sinister Six and we're gonna see Venom and and I, I'm just not eh, I'm just not excited I, I you know not excited for it at all uh, <laughs> also can I say uh we we mentioned this earlier, but I really dislike the development with um, Peter's dad, too, and the discovery that uh, the reason Peter Parker became Spider-Man is because his dad had injected the spiders with his own DNA. Right. It, because it makes this whole, this whole thing um, built on just the most wildly improbable of coincidences that Peter would not only be bitten by a radioactive spider that would turn him into Spider-Man, which is a lot to swallow to begin with, but that he was bitten by a radioactive spider, which just so happened to be injected with his own father's DNA. And if he had been any other person in the world, he would have died. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, a little crazy. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's this whole destiny thing, and it's turned Spider-Man into something that he's not, which was just an ordinary kid who just happened, you know, geeky, nerdy kid who just, you know, gets beat up by bullies, who just happened mm-hmm. to get bit by a radioactive spider, and it turns him into Spider-Man. And now that, now we've added this whole destiny element. Like, you know, it feels kind of Superman-ish. Like, you know, super, yeah. you know, I don't know. You're the chosen one. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um. Chad's uh, do, Chad's laughing cynically at us. No, no, <laughs> I, I think that's a perfectly fair argument. <laughs> do either of you think that Peter's dad is still alive? I mm, I think they're setting it so that they can have him if they want to, but I think that he's been conceived as somebody who's died. Yeah, but I, I, they haven't shown his death, so it's possible that he made it out of that you know plane. But I, it's not; it would be highly improbable, and so it would just add to the whole improbability factor if he did come. He's back. going to. He's going to come back as a winter soldier. <laughs> wrong, <laughs> wrong franchise. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, with comic book movies and maybe this comes from too many years of both watching these movies and maybe reading too many comic books, but anytime I don't actually see the death happen and see a corpse laying there for like more than a minute before somebody comes and whisk <laughs> it away. Um, I'm unconvinced of somebody's actual. Well, even death. so, I mean, we saw the death of Phil Coulson, and now look. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I can't even trust that anymore. You know, right? Uh, so, and you you look at. Uh, I guess this is another spoiler for people who haven't seen it, but the Winter Soldier and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, yeah. At, at this point, for Marvel to convince me somebody's dead. They're going to have to like kill them at the beginning and just let them lay there on the screen, not moving <laughs> the whole movie. And then at the end, if they're still there, I'm like, okay, they seem dead. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about so. earlier when I talked about how Marvel is, is, is not doing well on the uh, stakes front because, you know, yes, I, I, Captain America, one of my, one of the best movies, certainly the best movie I've seen this year uh, and, and a great movie, love the Marvel universe, but you know, Loki, we thought was dead and oh no he's not uh you know samuel jackson's uh nick fury nope not really dead uh you know phil colson nope not dead so there's just this hesitance to actually kill anybody that's that's a that's a problem you know i and it's weird because joss whedon if you know if has i think he's the one to me that has proven and yes he has brought characters back from the dead before but he's also killed characters and never brought them back like the stakes are real when you when you're passing the knife over your characters and your your audience doesn't know whether they are going to live or die and they're going they may not come back they may you know they he might pull an angel maybe and bring him back for his own series but mostly maybe not you know and and we're that's totally missing from the Marvel universe right now I'm curious too um I guess this is a little off topic but going back to the Avengers and Coulson's death um, it, it it seems a little odd because they've been dealing with the fallout of his resurrection and the reasons for that in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show. Sure. Um, but then when the Avengers 2 comes back and people who haven't really kept up with this whole complex Marvel mythology through the TV show or bothered with all that stuff are just sort of tuning in and see Coulson there. Or are they just going to be like, wait, what? He, he was dead, but now... I- Do we know for sure that Coulson's in the Avengers 2? I haven't even looked. Uh, no, we don't. But, um, I'm, you know, would assume... I was kind of surprised there wasn't some sort of presence from him in Captain America, although yeah. in, in retrospect, it, you know, it wasn't required. But, uh, yeah, I would be surprised if he wasn't in some form in Avengers 2. And that is a good point. Like, people who haven't been keeping up with the show, and that there is a very large contingent of people who gave up on that show, even though I never thought it was that bad. Um, a lot of people just gave up and said, I'm I'm done, I'm not coming back. And, and so, 
you know, and, and that therefore even a lot of people haven't even watched it. So I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. But, and, and, and by the way, technically maybe off topic, but hey, it's a comic book movie and it's, it's a Marvel <laughs> franchise and Spider-Man is also Marvel. So, you know, it's on topic as That's far as true. I'm concerned. <laughs> and while we're on the subject of Marvel franchises, um, a weird bit of legal uh, stuff with including the X-Men scene midway through the credits so of the Spider-Man movie. Wasn't that weird? Yeah. And, and so yeah. Weird. I'm happy. I was happy about it and excited because I am really excited for this upcoming film. Having Brian Singer back at the helm, I mean, I think it's going to be a tremendous film, but, you know. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, too. And, I mean, I've liked the trailers, but the scene they included was not, I would guess, is not one of the great scenes in the movie. Um, so you didn't <laughs> like the scene. I, I thought it was good. I, I, well, I thought good it was enough. okay, but, you know, it certainly wouldn't make me say, oh, I want to go see that movie if I hadn't seen the other <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and that could be, I don't know how that would work into the negotiations. Uh, it certainly is weird for the competing studios to be pr- promoting the film. So Yeah, and I hear that has to do with, with Mark Webb's contract because he was at Fox and was supposed to do more movies for them, and then he went to Sony, mm-hmm. and Fox wouldn't let go of him and unless Sony made some sort of deal so they agreed to use their Spider-Man movie to promote X-Men. Yeah. Uh, and which is an example of the the sort of reason I don't think a Roger Rabbit sequel could get made today with no, all of No, no. And and it's really frustrating because but, I don't care who owns the franchises, if they would just work together we would all be happier and the studios mm-hmm. would be happier and benefit from it as well. I mean, yeah. they could all be benefiting from the uh, the the goodwill that that would generate for everybody, and instead they're fighting and you know squabbling about it. It's really frustrating. Yeah. So anyway, well, I think we should bring this in for landing. I think this is uh, decision time for me. I have not given this film a star rating yet. I haven't put it on my uh, letterbox to, you know profile, and that's where I normally give it my star rating so I can remember it. And I have not done that yet. So I'm going to let you guys go first and see what you know, I'm going to hang back a little. So, Chad, why don't you tell us how you would rate this film on a five-star scale? Okay, I'm giving it three and a half out of five stars, I think. Um, Not outstanding. Probably about same par, same level, maybe a little beyond what I thought of the first film. Um, It was a lot of fun. It had its issues. We've talked about those. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I'm still excited for a third one. And 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 just for the record, that's what you're giving the original amazing or the the amazing Spider-Man, the first one. That's what you give it now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, Clark, um, this is probably going to sound a little harsh, but uh, I'm giving it a rating of one and a half stars out of five. Ooh, that is harsh because this oh. this movie. Uh, after thinking about it for some time, I, I don't think I've disliked the comic book movie this much since X-Men The Last Stand. Ooh, and, wow. And, and and like that movie, it took a franchise that I found promising and interesting and was looking forward to following and just almost annihilated my interest in it um, yep. just by making so many wrong decisions and allowing the studio to run things rather than somebody with a real creative vision. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, just just missteps at every corner, and not even the good chemistry between the two leads could save that. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 unless I'm seeing huge improvements uh, next time around, I may be done with Spider-Man. For yeah, no, I get what you're, where you're coming from. Although, when I walked out of X-Men The Last Stand, I felt dead inside, and I didn't feel that way about either Spider-Man movie, so... Uh, not going there. <laughs> no, X-Men The Last Stand was a horrendously terrible film. 
Uh, that is true. And uh, I don't know if I could go there with this. Well, um, and I did say since, not necessarily uh, okay. as much as. But, okay. um, but yes, it's uh, it's certainly, I haven't disliked a comic movie since that time as much. My, my biggest sadness in the entire whole wide world, well, okay, maybe not. But one of my biggest sadnesses in life is that X-Men The Last Stand has to sit on my shelf because it's part of the X-Men series. And I love the first two so much, and I can't stand having an incomplete series. And it just drives me <laughs> nuts. I occasionally walk by it and want to tear it from the shelf and throw it in the fire and you know what i, I actually uh, i completely feel you there because i'm very much a completionist and i have to have you know every single flawed part of a series no matter how bad it is <laughs> right but i, I rewatched the x-men movies again and i got so angry at that movie watching it again that i i took it i put it on ebay and i sold it so i currently <laughs> own all of the X-Men movies, even Wolverine Origins. <laughs> sure, you know, it's not, it's not yeah. as bad as people it's, make it out to be. It's not awful, but yeah, I, I own all of them except for that one because I just, I know <laughs> I can't sit through it again. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, I really wish that they would just remake that film into something, you know, that Brian Singer had envisioned. And I've heard rumors that, um, this upcoming movie is supposed to build off of the events of that one in some way, which is sort of. Well, I've heard uh, Brian Singer say there were things that we needed to fix, and a time travel movie seemed like the way to do that. Yeah. <laughs> because when you think about it, I, I'm going to get to my rating here in a minute, but this is, an, this is important. <laughs> um, when you think about it, um, that movie really did kind of kill the franchise. It's like, oh, what do we do now, guys? Well, I guess we're going to have to do some prequels. <laughs> well, I hope there's a scene where Wolverine goes back in time and um, assassinates Brett Ratner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. That's great. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I, I am boycotting him as a director. I won't watch any of his other films. I, I can't even think of one that he's made that. I, but if the, he was to make one, I would boycott it. He, he made Tower Heist, which was not that good. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a very good and creative director to me. No. Okay, so my star rating. I think I'm going to give this three out of five stars. Where the first Amazing Spider-Man. I can't remember if I've actually officially rated or not, but I'm thinking I would give it like two out of five. This film I give three out of five because I did enjoy it more ultimately, and I felt like it was an improvement. And I didn't, you know, I didn't feel dead inside when I walked out like I did with the Last Stand. Um, so yeah, I think three out of five is where I'm going to go with that. And my bottom line is, mm, there are certainly better comic book films in the world, uh, but you know, if you've watched them all, then you can go to the theater and see this one. Uh, so that's my bottom line. And any any closing thoughts, gentlemen? No, I'm good. Okay, Clark? I uh, just want to say thanks for having me on the show. It's always a lot of fun. All right, so with that, uh, if you want to find uh, Chad's work, Chad, where may people find your work on the internet uh, and keep up with you and stalk you and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> My movie website is chadlikesmovies.com. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins and on twitter.com slash chadadada, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. <laughs> And Clark, where may people, I know you have another podcast that you do featuring movie music and, and that sort of thing. Where can people keep up with you? Uh, they can go to dvdverdicts.com where they'll find uh, quite a few reviews of DVDs and Blu-rays that I've written. Plus, once a week, uh, my podcast, Sounds and Sights of Cinema, is posted there. And then I'm over other corners of the internet here and there, too, but that's kind of the central hub for a lot of the stuff I do. All right, very good. And if you want to keep up with my work, I'm on moviebyte.com every day, uh, every weekday. I'll write at least a little something out there. Uh, I'm going to be writing my Amazing Spider-Man 2 review soon. I meant to do it before this podcast, but I just, life, you know, 
reasons um <laughs> and uh so uh yeah if you want to keep up with me go to moviebite.com if you would like to follow me on twitter you can go to twitter.com slash tj draper pro i post uh, witty and pithy and uh, amazing things there all the time or, or something like that um yeah. if, if you would like to uh find the show notes for this episode you can do that at moviebite.com slash mb podcast slash 87 that's where you'll find all the links to the amazing and cool things we talked about and the not so cool and not so amazing things we talked about as well They'll all be there. If you would like to rate the show, we would very much appreciate it. Go to iTunes and search for Movie Byte in the iTunes store, and we will be the first result. And you can give us a five-star rating right there, and we would much appreciate that. It helps people to find the show and lets us know that you love us. We we crave your love. We're, we're like that puppy that just can't get enough. So uh, <laughs> go, and, go and rate us, and uh, we would very much appreciate that. With that, we're going to close out this episode. Uh, Chad, I actually haven't run this by you yet, but uh, I, I'm thinking Rio 2 since we kind of missed that when I took a couple weeks off, and I don't know how interested I am in Transcendence at this point and probably not interested in Walk of Shame. What do you think? Uh, maybe. I'll have to see the first one. So You haven't seen Rio? No, I have not. Hmm. I found it to be a much better movie than I thought it would be. So, uh, yeah, uh, well, we'll tentatively say Rio 2 then next week, and uh, we'll talk about that more offline and, and stuff like that. So, tentatively, Rio 2, we'll plan on that next week. Uh, so, until then, y'all have a good time at the cinema. See you guys. See ya. Bye.